Open your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you have a Bible not very familiar with, with where it is, it's towards the beginning. It's the, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the, in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses, a prophet and a priest and a leader of, of Israel some 3,400 years ago, writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Would you uh, pray with me briefly? Father, now we ask that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday the, the world was met with shocking video and, and audio of, of widespread attacks by Hamas, a, a Palestinian organization really overtly dedicated to the destruction of Israel by their own admission. This attack was upon the citizens of Israel. Shocking, if you saw them, were the images of women, the elderly, children being pulled out of homes and cars, kidnapped, ravaged, murdered. Interestingly, but not shocking, was the difference of opinion worldwide, the, the moral relativism, the desire by many to see both sides of this. See, I, I, I think we ought to be shocked by images of people dancing in the streets celebrating rape and murder. We ought to be shocked when mainstream media focuses more on the Israeli response than they do the images that were leaking of Israeli women and children being pulled from their cars by their hair dragged through the streets. But we're not really shocked, or at least we ought not to be. I mean, after all, as many have opined lately, Israel's the only country in the world that gets criticized when its citizens are attacked. But let's ask, why? Why the strange response? And I think to help us with that is our text this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Part of the answer lies in what we'll be reading this morning, part of it. Chronicling events that took place over 3,400 years ago, our biblical passage, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, it gives part of the historical reason and part of the theological reason. Actually, for more of the theological reason, sign up for Bible study. You'll be looking at the book of Romans where it's addressed there as well. What we're going to see this morning is that Israel, so long ago, was given 
an incomparable calling from, from an incomparable God. They were given an incomparable calling to be a certain, certain sort of nation. And ever since, the world, which is arrayed against that God, has been arrayed against that God's people. And while we do what the Bible also commands, I hope, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we should also consider our text this morning. What, what does it say to us? So if you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian and maybe what I said just sounds really weird, I, listen for this this morning. God provided 3,400 years ago Israel a mediator. He has provided one for you too. What, how, what should your response be? How ought you to respond? If you're here this morning and you, you know the Lord, you, you are a Christian, I would like you to listen and consider this. There is no one like the Lord. Are you granting to him the devotion that he deserves? Okay, the context. We started the series last week. Deuteronomy is the record of Moses delivering the law, the covenant, to a second generation of Israelites, the the children of that first generation that escaped slavery in Egypt to make their way to the promised land. Whenever I read the book of Deuteronomy, I I imagine the Israelites, they're they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They they are poised to cross and, and take this promised land, their inheritance, just as the Lord had promised. We saw last week that the first three chapters were really a travel log. It took them 40 years to, to travel what should have been like 11 days. And after reminding the Israelites of how they got there, we read this at the beginning of chapter 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So this is the kind of thing we might expect as we're reading through the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's it's after all, it's, it's the law, right? It's a bunch of commands. Israel was called to obey this word of God. But but we might ask why? Why? Now, the previous generation had not obeyed, and and they were destroyed. They all died in the wilderness. And and so it raises the question, is this the reason that this new generation should obey? If they don't obey, is God just going to crush them? Is, Is this a matter of like divine bullying, perhaps? Obey upon pain of death. And, and the answer, though, what we'll find today is it, it's far more generous than that. Israel should obey because they have received an amazing calling, an incomparable calling, a calling that God has given to no other people at this point in human history. And that calling comes from a God who is himself incomparable. So, so that's kind of the, the outline for what we'll be looking at this morning in these two chapters, an incomparable calling given to Israel and an incomparable God who gives it. So let's start there. Israel was to obey because Israel received an incomparable calling. So, so what kind of calling? What, what am I talking about? Well, first, God gave to Israel 
commands and laws. And, and at first you might think, well, that doesn't sound too great. Who wants a bunch of rules? Woohoo, we got a bunch of rules. That's, that's, that's wonderful. But, but remember the order. Remember what has taken place to this point. God has saved Israel out of Egypt, and he has led them to Sinai. Last week, we learned that, 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 that God led Israel through the wilderness to this point. And, and the lesson, that just right off the bat, is God saved them, then he gave them laws. Then he gave them laws. It, it doesn't work the other way around. It, it's not obey these laws, and then I will save you. Obey these laws, and you will be my people. No, God has already saved them. He's already rescued them. And then he says, okay, you are my people. This is how I want you to live. Torah, I mentioned that word earlier. It's the, it's the Hebrew word for, uh, for law or really instruction might be a better way of, of thinking about it. We need to remember as we work through the book of Deuteronomy, which itself means second law, right? That these laws were not conditioned by which Israel entered into the covenant. They were already part of the covenant, so they were blessed with the covenant, and now within the covenant, this is how they are to behave. They, they are laws that God set up because they're already in covenant with him, and these laws are the keys to flourishing in God's good creation. They were the laws by which the Israelites could express their commitment to the Lord. So in verse 6, for example, we read this. Keep them, keep these laws, do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The laws of Israel are wise Wisdom is being given to the, to the people of Israel by God, and, and it, it should have been evident to the nations. What other kind of nation has laws that are so just and so generous and so merciful? Verse 8, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? No other people had laws so merciful and just and generous, particularly to the disempowered of society. And it was supposed to be a beacon of light to all the nations. This is what justice looks like. This is what generosity looks like. This is what mercy looks like. And we're going to unpack that a little more later. So God had revealed his laws to the Israelites, but second, God had revealed himself to Israel. He revealed himself to them. In verse 7, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord your God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, God was near to Israel, so near to Israel that he was, that whenever they called upon them, he was there. Verse 13, and he, the Lord, declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. God had revealed himself to Israel and had given them, given the nation, commands and laws. God had revealed himself to Israel 3,400 years ago. Christian, Israel, back then, was blessed. They were unlike any other nation, not because they were wonderful. We're, we're going to see this over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. 
not, not because they were more numerous, not like God is hoping to hitch his cart to this wonderful, powerful horse that is Israel. No, God showed mercy and kindness to Israel because he is merciful and kind. And that made them, though, unlike any other nation. God had given to them his good law, his covenant. God had revealed himself to them. How much more so are we blessed? You see, as as we read through the scriptures, we come to this realization that God really doesn't owe revelation of himself to anybody. It is mercy and kindness and generosity all along the way. He doesn't owe revelation to anyone, and yet he keeps speaking. And you, Christian, you you know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the Lord God. He didn't have to do that. We have, I don't even know how many Bibles you have. I don't know how many I have. I have like a bazillion on my phone, it feels like, right? Let alone go through the the bookshelves of of our house and, and, and my office We've been given as Christians a better covenant that is chronicled in this. We, we have a better covenant. We have, if you will, better revelation than Israel, God. How blessed are we? Do you, do you take that revelation for granted? When, just remember, he doesn't owe it to you. He gives it to you. How, how ought we to cherish what we have been given? Do you, do you, prioritize Bible reading? Is it something you do just to check the box, or or, or do you open up your Bible in the morning and think, the living God is revealing himself to me in this? Do you look at Bible study as as just, oh, man, I guess I I better go, or maybe not, or maybe there's other better things I could do, or or, or do you look at it as a wonderful opportunity to, to gather with other Christians and to think about this revelation that is ours by grace? and kindness. Israel had received an incomparable calling. And so they were to obey for that reason. But they were also to obey because the God of Israel himself is incomparable. And the first thing we find out is something that might be counterintuitive to us when we think about how wonderful the Lord is. The Lord is a jealous God. The Lord is a jealous God. And that manifests itself right off the bat in chapter 4 with prohibitions on idolatry. No idols. And if you've ever been to church before, you would expect that. You're not supposed to have idols. If you grew up in a church that had the Ten Commandments on the wall, it's like, you know, no graven images. And, and probably, like, how many of you this morning worshipped a graven image, even by accident? Okay, so, so no one, right? Pro- not a thing. Not, at least it seems that way. So, so... But, but is it a thing for us? That's what I want us to think about here. Let's, let's look at how God describes idolatry and why it is wrong. In, in verse 11 and 12 and then 15, we read this of chapter 4. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. He's talking about that, that, that generation that he, well, the, the generation he's talking to was there. They're like little kids. And they, they had to have remembered the spectacular show that was at Mount Sinai 40 years earlier, right? Darkness, cloud, gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. 
There was only a voice. Verse 15, therefore watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that's another word for Sinai, out of the midst of the fire. Okay, did you catch that? God had no form. Israel saw no form. There wasn't anything that they could even like describe to their friends, let alone write, you know, sketch out. There was no form there. It was a voice. So it, it raises the question, what kind of idol could you even make? Right? How, how could you represent God when you have never actually seen him? You are totally convinced that he is alive and powerful, but you've never actually seen any kind of form. What kind of idol could you make? Verses 16 through 18 then. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. See, humans, like, I'm always amazed by creativity, but, but I also realize we're not that creative. We're just kind of derivatively creative. We, we basically do things that God has already done Right? Like, think of like the worst horror movies you've ever seen with scary monsters and stuff. I think God's already been there and done that, like down in the depths of the sea. Right? It's usually something with tentacles or eyes or whatever. And God's like, yeah, I made those, I made those, I made those. Right? So uh, we, we always go to that which we're familiar with, or we often do anyway. Right? And, and so God is saying, don't be tempted to do that when it comes to me. You saw no form. So not the form of an animal, not the form of a human, not the form of any creepy crawly thing. Certainly right? Why? Idolatry is wrong because it perverts and diminishes God. Any attempt of ours to represent the living God pictorially, or it's a statue or anything like that, is going to diminish and distort and pervert him by definition. We will reduce God to something far less than what he actually is. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that. He goes on in verse 26 of chapter 4. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. This is what will happen to them if they engage in idolatry. And he's really just talking about idolatry at this point. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. If the Israelites chose to behave like the Canaanites, they're going to be surrounded by all these nations who worship all of these gods with all of these idols. If they choose to behave like them, acting corruptly, making idols, then the Israelites would share the same judgment as the Canaanites. They would be removed from the land. Now, no one in the ancient Near East who made an idol believed that they were creating a god. At least, I don't think so. But they did believe that the essence of the false god attached its presence to the idol to such a degree that to be in the presence of the idol was to be in the presence of the false deity. So idolatry is wrong, it diminishes God, it distorts him. But another reason is that it takes devotion and worship away from the true, living, incomparable God. And if that's the case, then idolatry is it's fundamentally stupid. We're looking to something other than the Lord. There's a basic rule of life when it comes to worship, and, and we find it in Scripture itself. 
We become like that which we worship. We become like what we worship. Psalm 115, listen to this. This is verses two through eight. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become like what we worship. Now that has, uh, it's, it's a double-edged thing. On, on the one hand, that's wonderful for those who are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We will become like Christ. We worship Christ. We are drawn into his presence. He transformed us. We become like him. But if you worship anything other than the true living God, you will become like that thing that you are worshiping. It just works that way. And God would not have that for his people. We notice the warnings for the Israelites over and over again. Don't forget the covenant. Don't forget the covenant. And the, and the way that forgetting the covenant manifested itself was in idolatry. Verse 23 of chapter 4. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Notice. So what would happen if they forget the covenant? They're going to lapse into idolatry. It's just, it's almost like it's automatically going to happen. You forget the Lord, you're going to start worshiping something, and it's going to be the wrong thing. That's how it was for them. And that's how it is for us, too. I know, we're 3,400 years downstream of that. We're a part of a new covenant as well with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's true, we don't normally bow down before graven images. But remember that one of the things that makes idolatry wrong is that idolaters would give their idols devotion and hope that belonged exclusively to God. And if that's what idolatry is, then I think we can see it's easy for us to actually do that. So let me ask you, the Christian response, what are you putting your hope in? Our hope is in God and God alone. Our hope is in Christ. But what would it look like <laughs> if someone were to evaluate your life to determine what is this person actually hoping in? Job, relationships, sports, art, crafts, hobbies, popularity, friends. What, what, what would it look like? What are you putting your hope in? What are you devoting yourself to that would give you significance, meaning? Man, it is, it is easy for our hearts to wander away from God. So the words to Israel, remember the covenant. My words to you this morning are the same. Remember the covenant. We're going to have a chance here in a moment a few minutes, a few moments to do the Lord's Supper. That's a chance to remember the covenant. It takes intentionality to stay focused on the Lord. Remember the, 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 the words of, of Wesley's hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And I, I think if, if, if we think about it, it's so easy. It takes inten it take, it's so easy to drift because the world is pushing 
all one direction. That's why the Apostle Paul warned us in Romans 12, verse 2. He said, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The world will conform you. It will squeeze you into its mold. So Christian, remember the Lord. Remember the covenant that he has made with us. The, the gravity of this world, it pushes us into complacency. It pushes us into a kind of idolatry. We are lulled into depending on things, basically anything other than the Lord. And, and, and aside from church, for the most part, all the institutions, even of our land, all the systems are basically plausibility structures for unbelief. If you just drift, you will be pushed towards unbelief. And when you're pushed towards unbelief, you will inevitably put your faith in something else. So remember, intentionally remember, I'm literally like preaching to the choir here at this point. You're here this morning because you want help in remembering. I say, teens, young people, you you are old enough even now to remember Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember the covenant. Remember his calling upon your life. Paul gets to the heart of idolatry, actually, in, not Paul, Moses. My, my de facto guy who talks in the Bible is Paul. Moses. Moses, in verse 24, writes, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is one of the ways that God is incomparable. You see, the theological grounding, if you will, for the prohibition on idolatry is the jealousy of God. So it's appropriate that Moses explicitly says it right here. Isn't, you might be thinking, wait, jealousy, that's like a sign of insecurity. That's pettiness. Why would God brag about himself? I am, the je- I am a jealous God. Now, maybe if we're talking about teen romances and drama and that sort of thing, jealousy is, can be petty. Jealousy can be a sign of insecurity. But is jealousy unbefitting a relationship that is formed by covenant? Is jealousy unbefitting the relationship between a husband and a wife? I don't think so. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous for my wife's respect and commitment and intimacy and love. And, 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 and I rightly do not want others to take what rightly and wonderfully belongs to me. She rightly does not want others to take what rightly and wonderfully belongs to her. I, I say wonderfully when I'm talking about myself under advisement, but you get that, right? I mean, imagine telling a woman that she should not be so petty, but learn to share her husband because it will make him happier. Imagine speaking to the wife of an unfaithful husband and criticizing her for being jealous. Just get over it. You're so jealous. That's so petty. That'd be wrongheaded, be insensitive. Frankly, it'd be fundamentally stupid. Further, I know, just in my own relationship with my wife, that being true to the one to whom I am covenantally committed is the surest path to happiness and flourishing. Here's the thing. I'm broken and imperfect. 
But if I know that being faithful and jealous, being faithful to my wife and being jealous for her commitment is the path for my flourishing, and I'm broken and imperfect, well, take that to the level with God. God is none of those things. He is not broken. He is not imperfect. God, see, see well, talk about us first. Our jealousies, when they're wrong, they flow from insecurity and brokenness. But God is the most secure being in the cosmos. He, completely, he is completely self-sufficient. He's incapable of being petty. His jealousy does not flow from imperfection or insecurity. It's the outworking of his self-sacrificing and beautifully giving love. He wants what is best for us. He knows that he is what is best for us, and he jealously and generously wants our devotion. For being like that, to not be jealous would to be not loving so as a Christian, I think we should delight in the jealousy of God. Isn't it wonderful to be wanted? Isn't it wonderful to have someone who is jealous for your devotion? There's a zeal that God has that seeks to protect and to safeguard. It reflects his intensity of love for us. We should delight in the jealousy of God because in an infinite, self-sufficient being like the Lord, it is proof positive that he loves us and is committed to us. In fact, if God were not jealous for us, I am the God who frankly doesn't care, right? If, If that were the case, then we would wonder about the intensity of his love. So I'll just ask you, when you read a passage where God says, I'm a consuming fire, I am a jealous God, and it sounds for all the world like God is bragging about himself in that moment, how do you receive that? I think we should delight in God's jealousy for our devotion. Do you find the Lord's call for your devotion, your life, to be a burden to be unreasonable? Do you look at his commands as the demands of like a controlling despot? Or do you lean into his commands, recognizing how deeply prized you are? He created you. He knows what's best for you. His commands are actually what lead to flourishing, what lead to happiness, what lead to joy. You've heard me say this up here, but you know, like in the moment of temptation, uh, sin seems pretty attractive, but, but, but when I say no, I'll tell you, in all of my life, I have never regretted not sinning. In those moments where, where, where I made the choice, I, I'm not going to do this, that I'm tempted to do, I have never looked back on it and go, man, I just ripped myself off there. I wish I would have sinned that one time. I am always deeply grateful. And, 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 and I think for you, as you can think back on those times, you'll recognize that too. Isn't that just evidence that God's commands are good, that he wants what's best for you, and, and, and that those commands that he gives you are born out of a, a totally secure, self-giving jealousy and zeal because he cares for you? So God is incomparable, first off, because he's the jealous God. And second, the jealous Lord is also the merciful Lord. 
We see this in verses 25 through 31. You see, God, God demands exclusive loyalty and devotion. There will be consequences for Israel. We read about this. If they reject the love of God for the embrace of a false god. And, and later, in Deuteronomy 28, when we get there, whenever we get there, next year, next month, something like that, right? we'll find a series of curses or punishments as well as blessings for the nation if they do not live up to the covenant or if they are faithful to it, on the other hand. But here at the beginning, right at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, the failure for keeping the covenant is summarized under the larger heading of idolatry. We read verses 26 through 28. The threat of exile was formalized. I will vomit you out of the land. You will go to the land of, of, of idol worshipers, and there you will worship idols to your heart's content. They will be free there to do what they want most, to engage in idolatry. It's, it's really a devastating judgment of the Lord, right? To give us over to our sinful desires. This is what you want. Okay. So it's, it's one of God's worst curses. We see that even in the book of Romans. Therefore, he gave them over. You read that over and over again. uh, You wanted this? God, as punishment, lets us have what we actually want. But, here's here's that wonderful but statement, God provides a way back, even for his wayward people. And later in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, we'll see this again, but here it's formalized right at the beginning, verse 29. But from there, this place of exile, where you're engaging in idolatry, and it's just coming out, you know, it's like coming out of your gills, I suppose. From there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. God is compassionate, and there is always a way back to him for the repentant. We, here in, in Deuteronomy 4, we learn a very important principle. Mercy will always have the last word for God's people. Mercy will always have the last word for God's people. Why? Because God is merciful. There is always a way back. God will always respond to our repentance. So in in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. That's a great time to reflect and repent and do so joyfully, hopefully, lovingly recognize God forgives. God forgives. Sometimes, maybe because we're just so used to hearing about it in church, uh, we, we forget how wonderful the message of forgiveness of sins is. If you're here right now, you're struggling with sin and you're a Christian, my, my message to you is, uh, in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. If, if, if you're not a Christian, but, but you are racked with guilt, knowing your life is not what it's supposed to be, that you have made a hash of it because of choices that you have made and decisions that you have made, know this, that in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness, you can be forgiven. The slate can be wiped clean. And the theological reason for that is because God is merciful. We will preach over and over again, just that you hear it every Sunday that you hear the gospel, where forgiveness of sins is offered to those who will repent and believe. And if if you are not yet a Christian, my fervent plea to you this morning is accept the wonderful gift of forgiveness of sins Run to the merciful God in Jesus Christ who has made a path for you to be forgiven. 
robustly forgiven, completely forgiven, because Christ's death atoned for your sin. In chapter 5, we get the giving of the law. There's some preamble towards the end of chapter 4. There's some preamble at the beginning of chapter 5. And and then we launch into the Ten Commandments. And we've talked a bit about actually three of them already this morning, and we're not going to talk about the other seven. (laughs) That will come later. So if you came hoping for a Ten Commandments sermon, I'm... This was a three-commandment sermon, right? (laughs) Command one, no other gods. Why? Because God is incomparable. There is no other God. We have talked about that at length. Command number two, the idol rule. We've talked about that at length as well. Command number three, though, is a little bit different. Taking God's name in vain. What is that? Now, commonly, again, if you grew up in the church, how do you think about don't take the Lord's name in vain? Don't cuss right? Don't cuss. And it's, it's at least that, but I think it's way, way, way more than that. There's a lady who wrote a book, Carmen Imes, talk, and it's called Bearing God's Name, and in it she makes the argument that that's really what the, the, the third command is about, about bearing the name of God. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain is best understood, maybe even best translated as you shall not bear or carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. And why might we think that? Well, in Exodus 28, directions are given the high priest how he's to dress when he enters into the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And among his attire was a breast piece that contained 12 stones with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on them. And we read this, Verse 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the son of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. The high priest would bear the names of Israel, representing them as he went in before the Lord. And when God says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, he's saying, do not bear my name in vain. That is, I've given my name to you. You are representing <laughs> me my name to the peoples. Don't misrepresent me. Which means that we've actually already talked about the third commandment this morning, about this incredible calling that Israel was given. The God of Israel was a just and righteous God. His mercy was on displays in the very laws of Israel where where the people were to be concerned not so much for themselves and their own rights, but for their neighbors and for their neighbor's rights. Notice the emphasis, if you were to scan through the Ten Commandments, they're all about how you treat others, and in particular, how you treat your neighbor. And though there are some similarities between the law codes of Israel and the law codes of the ancient Near East, the similarities end when we consider the graciousness and mercy and compassion shown to all people, not just the powerful. Israel's laws protected and cared for the widows, the orphans, and the sojourners, the definition of the disempowered in that society, the vulnerable. Uh, um, um, the morality of a society is often demonstrated on, demonstrated on how it treats its most vulnerable people. Israel was supposed to be unique among nations. They bore the name of God to the nations as they showed mercy and compassion 
and kindness, not just to the people who could help them, the powerful, but to those who really had absolutely nothing to offer them at all, the disempowered. That is how they were supposed to represent God. Application for that, think about this. 3,400 years ago, the Jewish people, they received an incomparable calling to bear God's name to the nations. Fundamentally, not in a great missionary mandate to go out, but more of an attraction model. The nations will hear of our great God. Who has a God like Israel, where they, the laws are so merciful and kind? Today, though, Christian, you've received an even greater calling to take the name of Jesus to the nations. Jesus said that our love for him will be demonstrated in our obedience to him. He said that the world will recognize that we are truly his disciples if we love one another. He said that the world would recognize that God the Father sent him for the world if we, Christians, are unified. So I'll ask you, how are you doing in this? Are you bearing God's name in vain or faithfully? Are you representing Christ faithfully or not so much? Now, we're going to leave commandments 4 through 10 to be unpacked throughout the rest of the study on Deuteronomy. So, Because so much of what follows in the book of Deuteronomy, I think, is really case law for how commandments 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 were to be obeyed. So we're going to hit all of those hard. We'll close, though, with this today. Go to verse chapter, chapter 5, verse 22. Chapter 5, verse 22. When the people of Israel first heard the words of God from Sinai, and they heard these wonderful laws, they were overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed. Verse 24, and you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and, and man still live. That, that was like a stunning thought, right? They wouldn't have thought that given the, the immensity of who God is. I would just say, note even here, the words of God are tied to his glory and, and his greatness. And, and, and so as, as they looked, as, as they thought in that moment, they, wow, we saw like evidence of God. We, we were in his presence and we still live. Can we count on that? Can we count on that? And they thought, no, probably not. Verse 25, now therefore, why should we die? They asked back at Sinai 40 years earlier. For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we will die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? So they're like, like they're doing some, some calculus here. They're doing some, it's like, okay, this was awesome. This was amazing. I don't even know how we're still alive. I don't think we can count on that. So something's got to change. The Israelites had been in the presence of the Lord, and they recognized, as all who do, who enter into the presence of the living God and live to tell about it, that one can never be familiar with God. We enter his presence, and we survive in that presence through God's mercy, not our capacity. Israel knew she could not continue to press her luck. <laughs> so they become fearful. They, so they did something very interesting. They asked for a mediator. 
Ask for a mediator, someone who can act as a go-between, someone who has the capacity to stand in the presence of God and then walk away from God and go into the presence of Israel and, and, and deliver the goods, the commands, the, whatever it was. They turn to Moses. Verse 27, go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. it it's actually rather comical. They're like, oh, this was awesome. My heart barely stood being in the presence of God. I don't think we can do that again. Moses, you keep going up on that mountain. You keep going on that mountain, and then you come down and you tell us what we're supposed to do. Someone else needs to go near to God. Someone else needs to hear his words. And then that someone else will go to the people, speak to them so they can hear, they can survive, and they'll listen. At least that's what they said. What's wonderful, though, is that God hears their words and he affirms them. He says in verse 28, they are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. So God said yes to the request for a mediator. God provided a mediator. For Israel, Moses would be that mediator. God would continue to speak to him so that he could play the part of the prophet and give to the people God's laws. Moses, himself a priest of sorts, would give to the people a priesthood, those who would offer sacrifices for the people so they could continue to approach the Lord and live. Moses would intercede for the people of God. That's what a mediator does. Time after time, as you know, if you've read any of the Old Testament, Moses pleaded for the lives of Israel, that sinful people, Lord, don't destroy them. Lord, let this people live, he said over and over again. And through his mediation, God responded, I will have mercy, I will forgive. God listened to the mediator and forgave. But we also know from these two chapters that Moses was an imperfect mediator. In chapter four, Moses confesses this. It's kind of funny how he does it. He says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance for I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Moses could not stand in the presence of God on his own merit. But it's worse. Moses was so imperfect. Indeed, he was so sinful, he wouldn't be able to go to the people, with the people into the promised land. But he would die outside the land. I'm going to die in this land. You're going to go into that land, he said. But after Moses died, God continued to provide mediators. He raised up prophets. He raised up priests. And the Old Testament tells the story of Israel going through mediator after mediator, all of them imperfect. The prophets would speak. The priests would offer sacrifice after sacrifice, all of them ultimately imperfect. None of them robust enough. None of them efficacious to bring lasting and total forgiveness. Not those sacrifices, not from that imperfect priesthood. And you see, to this day, nothing has changed with regard to our need for a mediator. We need, if we are to stand before God and live, someone who, in the words of Job, can lay his hand on God and can lay his hand on us. That's what we need. 
someone who can stand between us and God and, and speak God's truth to us, someone, quite frankly, who will plead for our lives, someone to whom God will listen and forgive. But friends, though nothing has changed with regard for our need for a mediator, everything has changed with regard to the ultimate mediator that God has given us. Jesus Christ is that mediator. Jesus, the word of God made flesh, spoke truly, speaks truly the words of God to a wayward people. Jesus, the great high priest, offered a better sacrifice than Moses' priesthood ever could. Because unlike the animals, indeed unlike the former prophets and priests, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, offered himself a perfect sacrifice for us. I, I love Wesley's hymn, Arise, My Soul Arise. Listen, in light of what we just heard to how Wesley reflects on this, he says, he writes in this hymn, Five bleeding wounds he, that is Christ, bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. If you're not yet a Christian, I urge you to run to the great mediator, Jesus Christ. There is no other God. There's no other way. There is nowhere else to turn. And that God, as we have learned, is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God, but he is rich in mercy, and he has done all to make forgiveness possible. If you will repent and embrace in faith the great mediator that God has provided. Christian, my words are the same. Run to the mediator. Not so that you can become a child of God. You've already done that. Run to the mediator because you are an adopted child of God that you might flourish and truly live. That his spirit might empower your obedience so that we might be the people who bear the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in a manner that's worthy of him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, um, we need to learn how to delight in your jealousy. We need to learn how to think about your laws and commands, that they're for our good, that you are a good God who does good, that you love us with a passion that will not let your children go. Help us to live into that and to understand that. And Father, I pray that for any who don't understand that, please give them that understanding, even today, even this morning. Bless us all to the end that Jesus, our great God, our great King, our great Mediator, our great Savior, might be honored. It's in his name we pray. Amen.